Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Casey Witchman, Assistant Professor in the School of Economics at Georgia Tech and an RFF University Fellow. Casey and several co-authors recently published a working paper that uses a field experiment to estimate how using smart thermostats and time-varying electricity pricing can reduce household utility bills and demands on the power sector. As more and more of us install smart thermostats, I'll ask Casey how much money these devices can help us save, how they affect the temperatures in our homes, and what they could mean for the grid's reliability and environmental impact. Stay with us. All right, Casey Wichman from Georgia Tech down in Atlanta. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on Resources Radio. Thanks, Daniel. I'm really excited to be here. So Casey, we're going to talk about a recent paper that you uh, co-authored with some RFF and former RFF colleagues. But before we do that, you haven't been on the show before. So we, we always ask people how they got interested in environmental issues, either as a kid or, or as you got older. So what sort of steered you into working on these types of things? Sure. Yeah. I, so it's... You know, it's interesting. I've always kind of been interested in the environment. And by that, I mean, I was interested in being in the environment. You know, when I was young, I just remember spending every waking moment outside. Um, uh, When I was young, we moved to a small town outside of Buffalo, New York, and we had several acres, um, a lot of woods in the back that butted up to uh, the the Buffalo Creek. And so I just spent all of my time outside in the woods. year-round, in the snow, in the summer, when it was raining. Apologies, this is the Georgia Tech steam whistle in the background, which uh, occurs on the 15-minute mark of every hour and then somewhat randomly uh, <laughs> in the in, 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 at other times. That's great. And you were telling me your, your office overlooks a power plant, right? So that's a steam whistle coming from the power plant? That's right. That's right. That uh, provides uh, steam heat and cooling to uh, buildings on campus. Awesome. Okay, well, keep going. You're telling us about uh, your growing up outside of Buffalo. Yeah, yeah. And so I spent a, a ton of time in the, in the woods, you know, in the dirt, playing outside, playing sports, building tree houses, hiking, things like that. Um, and I didn't really understand that doing something like making a career out of studying the environment was a thing you could do. Um, that was never a, a, an option that I really considered as uh, as a career. And so when I eventually went to college in Ithaca, New York, I realized that there were these opportunities to actually, you know, focus on the environment in a more structured way. And I started college as an English major, um, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Maybe I had aspirations of being a writer or something like that. And, you know, I kind of was taking classes all over the place and realized that um, I wanted to study in the environment. I didn't really know what that meant, but I ended up taking a handful of uh, economics classes and realized that you know, studying the environment through the lens of uh, economics was just made a lot of sense. It was very intuitive. I thought it was a really nice way to think about uh, leveling the playing field in terms of the way we talk about the environment in terms of its costs and benefits so that you can communicate the benefits of environmental protection uh, in dollar terms that can be, you know, translated to uh, to other domains. And so I really, you know, had this epiphany in college where I, I decided, you know, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to focus on. So 
I graduated college in 2009. The opportunity cost of getting a job versus going to grad school was uh, uh, pretty low. And so I decided to, to enroll uh, uh, in, into economics graduate school to really study the environment. And, you know, when I reflect, as I was thinking about this, when I reflect on my early upbringing in, you know, enjoying the outdoors, enjoying the wilderness, um, I also, you know, was thinking that there's this family connection I have with the environment or environmental pollution. My grandfather worked at Bethlehem Steel from the day he graduated high school to the day he um, retired. Um, I grew up, I lived a few miles away from Lake Erie, which has a lot of pollution problems. And so like this, this relationship between industry and the environment was kind of always connected to my livelihood. And so it's kind of an interesting thing I've been thinking about uh, as I reflected on this. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, well, I would love to ask you more questions about that. We could have like a whole deep, deep therapy <laughs> session kind of thing. But uh, but let's instead treat our listeners to uh, to this new paper uh, that you've co-authored with Josh Blondes and Karen Palmer and Derek Whittleman. Uh, and the paper is called Smart Thermostats, Automation, and Time-Varying Prices. We'll have a link to it in the show notes so people can check it out and follow along if they like. But can you start us off by helping us understand how the, those three elements that you call out in the title, Smart Thermostats, automation, and time-varying pricing, sort of what do those mean and how could they work together to potentially save people money and reduce emissions in the power sector? Right. So the way I like to think about this paper is that we're trying to focus on how these new quote-unquote smart technologies can interact with classical economic incentives in order to optimize energy use better than humans do on their own. And so, uh, you know, usually we think about, you know, as economists, we think about getting the, the prices right. That tends to be this hyper obsession that economists have, because once you set the right uh, incentives, you can let market forces play out naturally um, and to then achieve some efficient solution. And so um, time varying pricing or time of use rates in this context um, uh, suggest that there's this mismatch between when electricity is cheap to produce and when people actually use it. And then especially as we have more and more renewable energy on the grid, we're seeing that we have lots of clean energy during the day. Then individuals all come home from work at the same time. They turn on their Halloween lights and decorations and televisions and start cooking. And that increase in demand needs to be matched with an increase in supply. Uh, and typically, that means coal or natural gas plants come online, which increases the cost of supplying electricity. So we uh, economists would say, let's set an electricity price, a time of use price that fluctuates throughout the day, that's consistent with those changing costs of supplying electricity. And then by matching those incentives, we'd see people reduce consumption when electricity is more expensive, um, more expensive to generate because generally we consume less of things when its price is higher. That's the law of demand. Um, so that's what we mean by time varying pricing or time of use prices um, because they allow customers to see that that price sig signal fluctuates and then they can alter their consumption behavior in response to that changing price. Now, we also are interested in the, the interaction of that classical economic incentive with this new suite of technology called smart thermostats. And by smart thermostats, I really mean, you know, these Nest, Ecobee, Honeywell thermostats that 
um, have features and algorithms embedded in them that learn about your preferences. They learn about how long it takes to cool your household, and they attempt to optimize your electricity use uh, based on what they learn about your, your household. They can also communicate two ways. You can communicate with your thermostat, and your thermostat sends information back to the mothership, which might be Nest or Ecobee or Honeywell, that then can uh, share that information with um, with your electric utility. And so uh, these smart thermostats, uh, you know, the key is that they're learning uh, and, and they're able to do something that can be influenced by utility incentives or something like that. And so the automation component of the title is really focusing on what types of software features within these smart thermostats or what sort of um, automated features do these smart thermostats facilitate that can help individuals respond uh, better to these neoclassical or standard economic incentives. Great. That's really helpful. And um, and so with all of those elements in place, you and your co-authors ran an experiment. Can you tell us about the experiment? Sure. And so, you know, as a researcher, I'm always, you know, trying to pitch experiments to anyone who will listen because <laughs> it's really the gold standard of research. Um, so whenever I have the ear of a utility company, you know, uh, someone who works at a municipal government or, you know, in this case, a technology company that... Uh, that has access to hundreds of thousands of smart thermostats, you know, my goal is always, can I sell them on an idea, a randomized experiment, uh, so that I can learn something about the world, I can get a research paper out of it, and um, hopefully they also learn something about their customer base as well. And so Karen Palmer and I visited Ecobee's headquarters in Toronto back in 2019 to share some work that we were uh, doing with uh, Ecobee's thermostat data already, just descriptive work, trying to understand how people interact with their smart thermostats. And we heard about this new program that they were uh, about to roll out called EcoPlus. And EcoPlus was a software upgrade to existing thermostats that um, included a feature uh, that automated responsiveness to time of use pricing. And I'll come back to that in detail, but we tried to sell them on the idea of running an experiment to measure the effectiveness of this uh, EcoPlus program rollout. Um, and we thought it would help them measure the effectiveness of this program and circumvent some standard kind of selection concerns about how do you know you're measuring the causal effect of these thermostat features if you might have customers selecting in or opting into the program that might be correlated with some other thing. You might only be estimating uh, the results for customers who really care about energy conservation. So... You know, this tech companies tend to be pretty familiar with this type of randomization um, because they're constantly running A-B tests with their customers to determine what works and what doesn't for different products and services. Um, so we worked with them at, uh, to uh, roll out this suite of features, EcoPlus, um, by withholding a random control group. And so in August 2019, Ecobee rolled out this new suite of features. We had, uh, we had selected a random control group that wouldn't get this push notification or update on their uh, cell phone app or their thermostat to enroll in this program. And by comparing the, um, the outcomes of energy use and discomfort, which I'll talk about in more detail, 
um, we were able to see of the folks who were encouraged into the program versus the folks who were not encouraged into the program, we were able to compare the resulting energy use and changes in indoor temperature that uh, households experienced to be able to measure the ultimate effects of this thermostat feature that automated responsiveness to time of use pricing. Um, and we did this in Ontario, Canada. Ontario may seem like an odd choice, but the one reason we wanted to do this in Ontario was because they have default time of use pricing, which is uh, rare to find in the United States. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So um, we're going to, you know, there's tons of uh, rich detail that I would encourage people to explore in the paper. We're going to gloss over lots of it and, and jump right to some of the results. So can you tell us what some of the key results were in terms of energy consumption uh, for households? Sure. And so we, we don't observe electricity usage at the household level, but we do uh, observe a rich set of data from uh, in a variety of forms from the thermostat itself. And so the key metric that we're focusing on is HVAC compressor runtime. And we use this as a proxy for energy use. So what we actually see on our computers is how many minutes per hour is your AC system running? And this is a pretty intuitive way about thinking about your own energy use. You know, you typically know when you're AC system is running, you hear the compressor kick on and the fan kick on. And so what we see uh, with this automated time of use pricing feature is that um, right before these small increases in price uh, that occur at two different points in the day, we have an off-peak period, a mid-peak period, and a peak period. Uh, the difference in electricity price between the off-peak period and the peak period effectively doubles. So we see pretty large changes in electricity prices. The AC system begins to pre-cool the home right before these price increases go up, which suggests that you know uh, the system is trying to cool the house more before the price goes up so that it doesn't have to work as hard during this high-priced period. Then we see during the peak period, a big reduction in uh, the frequency at which this AC system runs. So um, we see this for all households who activated the smart thermostat feature, this time of use feature, and that translates to about a 62% reduction in the amount of time uh, that the AC system runs. And all in all, these reductions in AC system usage are notable, but the overall effect on a customer's bill is relatively modest because the AC use only comprises so much of your energy bill. Um, these big uh, reductions in energy use translate to about a $5 decrease in your average monthly electricity bill, which is modest. And, you know, it's one reason why we might not expect these time of use prices to work on their own um, if, you know, the, the benefits to changing your behavior and changing your energy use profile throughout the day only has modest savings. And so that might not be enough to spur energy use uh, changes on their own. But that's one of the reasons we think automation could increase the effectiveness of time of use pricing. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and of course, you know, small changes for individuals can end up adding up to be pretty significant. And we're going to touch on that in just a moment. So one of the other elements that you and your co-author measure here is how changes in electricity consumption or changes in, you know, air conditioning running affects people's comfort level. In other words, how much discomfort are people willing to endure to save some money? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So this is actually one of the, the most fun things about this project. 
Um, you know, I mentioned that we didn't have access to electricity data, which you know, most research in this space tends to focus on changes in kilowatt hours. But because we don't have that, we, we were able to come up with a metric that is actually closer to the, the, the energy service that people consume, which is, you know, in-home comfort. And so we constructed a measure that we call discomfort, which is um, defined as kind of the temperature wedge um, between your preferred temperature and your experienced temperature times the number of minutes you actually experience that discomfort. So if you prefer your indoor temperature to be 74 degrees, but you experience the temperature to be 76 degrees for 60 minutes, we would call that 120 discomfort degree minutes. And that metric doesn't matter that much, but we're capturing this deviation between your preferences and what you actually experience. And so um, this is another outcome variable we look at because this is actually the cost of that energy savings that we saw previously. So um, overall, you know, we find very modest impacts on discomfort, which suggests that for our full sample, uh, there is a small increase in discomfort, primarily focused in the uh, peak period. But once we start digging into that, we find that for two-thirds of our sample, who are typically not home during the peak period because they're out running errands or they're working in an office, we did run this experiment before, we were all working from home, <laughs> um, we see that this discomfort effect is concentrated among the folks who are typically home throughout the day. Um, so uh, these are in the top tercile of uh, motion sensing that we can observe through the thermostat. And even though we do find these increases in discomfort costs for this small uh, set of folks who are typically home during the day, it tends to be pretty small. On average, um, it translates to a 0.75 degree Fahrenheit change um, per hour uh, in the average hour in our sample. And we think these are pretty small effects that people likely are willing to bear um, or are likely uh, not even going to be perceptible to most uh, most households. Yeah, that's so interesting. And can you talk a little bit more about that difference between people who were home during peak periods and people who weren't? Am I like... Were you measuring discomfort only for people who were home? I think I think the answer is yes, but can you clarify that? Yeah, so there's two things. In our measure of discomfort, if no one is home to consume that discomfort, it comes up as a zero by our definition. Um, so one of the ways we leverage the really cool data that we have access to through Ecobee is that we actually know that the thermostats have motion sensors on them. So we know when somebody walks by uh, their thermostat or another motion sensor that they have in their home. And so we use that to construct a measurement of who is typically home during typical hours um, based on their schedule. And so we can... Um, segment customers or households into three different groups, which we call um, often home, sometimes home, and rarely home, uh, something like that. I might get the, the name slightly off, but we essentially just say during the peak period, in the pretreatment period, do we observe motion in the home on a typical hour? And um, we break households up into these three groups. So for the groups that aren't typically home during the peak period, they see energy savings with no corresponding 
increase in discomfort. But for the folks who are typically home, maybe these are people who are working from home, uh, we see the same uh, magnitude of energy savings, but they do have slightly higher discomfort costs. But again, these discomfort costs are pretty pretty modest, um, you know, less than a degree on average um, for each hour that they're home. Great. Thank you for that additional explanation. That That's really helpful. So let's turn now to this issue of scale that that, that I mentioned a few moments ago. Um, if this program were rolled out at a at a large scale, maybe beyond the borders of of where your study focused, can you give us just you know some kind of ballpark sense of how much energy it might be able to save, and in addition, what the implications of those energy savings might be for uh, for emissions and also maybe also for grid reliability? If we think about you know really hot days when the grid is under stress, um, what what sense do you have of how big this thing could scale? Sure. This is something we were also curious about. And so within our small Ontario study, we did a little back of the envelope calculation to see, you know, how much energy savings we might actually um, see from this experiment itself. Um, And we were interested in this because even though these are relatively modest energy savings at the household level, we expected that if we added them up across a lot of customers, they might be substantial. And so um, just within our Ontario experimental sample, which is about 2,200 households, we see that that translates to a 0.56 megawatt reduction in average hourly peak demand. Now, what is that? <laughs> um, um, so, you know, this is, is, is something where my co-authors are even better at describing what exactly a megawatt is. But a megawatt on average can power anywhere from 400 to 900 homes in a year. So even within our small experimental sample, we see somewhat large reductions in peak period energy use that could be valuable to an electric supplier. Now, if we were to go out on a limb even further and extrapolate this to uh, smart thermostats, say, in California, um, which we do because California is considering uh, rolling out uh, an opt-out time-of-use pricing program. So we think that this is a a reasonable place to be studying these types of automated programs. Um, If all California households that have a smart thermostat saw the same savings as we did in our experiment, that would translate to 427 megawatts uh, of reduction in hourly peak demand, which is a lot larger. We also make some conservative assumptions about how many people will actually opt in to TOU rates and opt into um, the automated program. And with that California sample, we find about a 66 megawatt reduction in hourly peak demand. And to put this in scale, um, 66 megawatts of grid-scale battery storage costs around $100 million today. So if we wanted to substitute that demand for grid-scale battery storage, we would see pretty big cost savings coming from this automated feature. I mean, there are a lot of assumptions and uh, simplifications that we've had to do to make that, uh, that translation, but I think it gives you a sense of the potential magnitude of, uh, of these programs. Yeah, it absolutely does. And maybe just clarifying one acronym that you used, I think you said TOU rates, and that's time of use rates. Is that right? That's the same thing as time varying pricing, basically. That's correct. That's correct. TOU rates, time of use rates are a form of time varying pricing, not the only form, but the form that we are studying in this experiment. Great. Understood. 
Okay, so so you just mentioned California as one place, uh, you know, where these types of programs might be rolled out um, at larger scale. And you know, I've certainly heard about these types of programs from from my utility where I live in Michigan. Um, I have a smart thermostat, so I, I I haven't actually opted into these yet, but maybe I will. Um, can you give us a sense of how widespread these types of programs currently are, and in addition, what types of barriers you might expect, either political or social, that could impede them from being further deployed? Yes. Uh, so, Daniel, you are uh, not the only one who has access to TOU rates and has not opted in. I think that's one of the challenges here. And so, the you know, I think about 50 percent, you know, I've seen varying estimates, but about 50 percent of electric utilities have some form of TOU rates, time of use rates available to customers which means that you could opt in if you were so inclined, if you knew you were, you know, had irregular hours that you could benefit from uh, time of use rates, you might actually, you know, want to opt into those types of rates. Uh, on average, based on the estimates I've seen, less than 2% of customers actually uh, opt in to time of use rates, at least in the U.S., um, and so very few people are actually on time of use rates in the U.S., uh, but we are seeing an increasing push towards perhaps making time of use rates the default. You could always opt out. But, um, you know, one thing we know from behavioral economics is that default effects are very strong. So we would likely see that customers, uh, you know, would stick with the default and potentially optimize their uh, consumption accordingly. Um, my sense is that these Rate structures are not that popular because customers don't see very large cost savings. You know, as I suggested, if you have this very intelligent thermostat feature optimizing for you and doing probably as 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 good of a job as it could, you know, you're only seeing five dollar savings a month. Um, that might not be enough of a carrot to encourage customers to actually change their behavior in a substantial way, but. One of the nice things and one of the things that I think we're somewhat optimistic about based on the results of this paper is that if TOU rates were the default rate structure, if customers did uh, or if a large number of customers were on a time varying rate structure, we are seeing customers adopt smart thermostats. Some estimates of uh, smart thermostat penetration range from 15 to 20% across the US. So a lot of people have smart thermostats on the wall. And this feature that we study is a very simple, well, it's not necessarily simple uh, to build the software that goes into it, but you can push it out to hundreds of thousands of customers very easily with a routine software upgrade. So you could actually get this automated feature operating in a lot of homes with very little uh, uh, additional cost per household. And so we think that that's pretty encouraging. And that's one way where I think we can see some of these bigger effects scale in a meaningful way. Yeah, that makes sense. And another thing I was thinking about as you were answering is, you know, the the effects on discomfort that you find, you, you highlighted that they're, you know, really quite small. I could imagine that some customers might be wary of uh, opting into these programs because they might, you know, fear some kind of scenario where they're sweltering in their house, you know, during a hot day and, and the discomfort effects are much larger than you actually find uh, in, in your analysis. 
Yeah, that's right. And and you know, this is something we were suspicious of as well. I personally have a I have a smart thermostat that I don't love because it thinks it's smarter than me, and I always worry that it's making my dogs too hot in the summer when we're not home. And so I, I you know, I, I I was suspicious that these programs were not going to work out because people would be uncomfortable and then just disable the feature. Um, but we actually explore that question explicitly with the data we have, and we find that very few people actually uh, turn off the feature. We see an equal number of people actually increase their savings preferences, which kind of scales how aggressive the, the, the algorithm will try to save you uh, save you energy. And so uh, we're actually, you know, I think we all started out being somewhat skeptical that these programs would work in the long run, but the data suggests that uh, people are actually willing to tolerate some additional discomfort for, um, and, you know, relatively small discomfort for these small dollar savings. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, well, Casey, this has been a really fascinating conversation and, um, you know, I, I've learned a lot and I'm sure our audience has as well. So let's close it out with the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack, something that you've read or watched or heard recently that you think is really great and that you'd recommend to our listeners? Sure. Um, so as I was thinking this uh, about this, I uh, couldn't decide. And so I'm going to offer two options. The first is going to be a safe option that I think your audience will appreciate, uh, and that is uh, Michael Mann's The New Climate War. So Michael Mann is a climate scientist who uh, is an excellent communicator about the climate problem, but uh, I'm teaching a course called The Economics of Climate Change this semester uh, to upper-level undergraduates, and I read this to get psyched up for the semester at the end of the summer. And I, you know, what I found most illuminating in this book is how Clearly, uh, Michael Mann describes this disinformation campaign uh, fueled by the fossil fuel industry about the severity of the climate problem and how this disinformation campaign is attempting and succeeding in sowing division within groups that still want to tackle climate change. And I found it to be very eye-opening. Um, it confirmed some, uh, some, uh, some things that I already knew, but uh, I also think that Michael Mann's policy uh, prescription for the climate problem is very economist friendly, which I appreciated because economists uh, often come out as the villain. You know, we only want to price carbon and that's not necessarily what um, uh, environmentalists uh, first choice of a policy would be. But I, I think that uh, there's a lot that uh, I agreed with uh, in this in this book. Great. And what's it, what's your less safe choice? So, so the second book, and this is a, a nod to my wife, who is always encouraging me not to read books by only white men, um, and it's a little more outside the the um, outside the uh, purview of you know climate policy, energy policy specifically, but it's a book called Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller. And uh, Lulu Miller is a, a co-creator of Invisibilia, the NPR podcast, and um, I think a former producer of Radiolab, which is one of my all-time favorite podcasts. But it's about, it's kind of this crazy book that doesn't, 
it's hard to categorize what exactly it is. It's part memoir, part history of this individual, uh, David Starr Jordan, who was a taxonomist and the founding president of Stanford. Um, and as I was looking into him, I actually realized he grew up in Western New York in a small rural town in like the 1850s. Um, that's 30 minutes away from where I grew up in some bizarre coincidence. Um, but he was a taxonomist, and I, it, it's just this really nice, uh, uh, really pleasant, beautiful way of uh, uh, looking for order in life and trying to understand how this early taxonomist, who was the first president of Stanford, uh, and labeling all of these fish and how he you know, viewed the world, and he ended up having some pretty awful eugenicist views down the line, but also connecting it back to the uh, to the author's personal life. Um, and so I, 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 I struggled to actually communicate how incredible the book was. So I'll just leave it at that and let you um, let your listeners uh, uh, take that book up for themselves. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I've heard that that book is great from our producer, Elizabeth Wasson, and also from some others. So so yeah, I should definitely check that out too. Well, uh, one more time, Casey Wichman from Georgia Tech, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about this really fascinating new work that you've done with your co-authors. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Daniel. It was great to talk about this. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.